Welcome to Never Again Is Now, a podcast about anti-Semitism. Today we talk with a young German on speaking up against anti-Semitism that was expressed to him by an Uber driver in Chicago and how important education is for addressing anti-Semitism. I'm Evelyn Marcus, and in addition to being a psychologist, I am featured in the documentary about anti-Semitism, Never Again Is Now. I am a Dutch Jew and a daughter of Holocaust survivors. In 2006, I immigrated to the United States because of the rising anti-Semitism in Europe. I am Phyllis Stimbler-Miller. I'm the founder of the free nonfiction Holocaust theater project, The Edge of the Wedge, which has also been professionally translated into German, although I'm not going to try and say the correct title in German. It translates into Steps into the Abyss. I was born in the Midwest. I grew up in a small town outside Chicago, Elgin, Illinois, which was not a Holocaust Jewish community. It was a community of Jews whose parents and grandparents had fled the Tsar and other programs in Russia, pogroms in Russia. And yet, in September 1970, my U.S. Army officer husband and I found ourselves stationed in Munich, Germany, and it changed our lives forever. Carlo Wieseler is a 19-year-old from Cologne, Germany, who is an intern at the Illinois Holocaust Museum. He's a representative of the Action Reconciliation Service for Peace, a German organization that focuses on reconciliation with the groups affected by the Holocaust. Carlo first got in touch with the museum when he wrote an important school paper in his bilingual history class. For the report, he did several Zoom interviews with the German-Jewish Holocaust survivor, Rolf Rebock. It's an honor to have you here, um, Carlo, that you uh, took the time to be on our show. Thank you for that. It's an honor to be invited. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I get to ask the first question today. The organization that sent you is the Action Reconciliation Service for Peace. How many volunteers participate each year? Uh, and where do these volunteers serve? And what do you do? I mean, what do you do at the Illinois Holocaust Museum? And what do others do at other places? Right. So overall, Action Reconciliation Service for Peace sends roughly 165 students every year. Uh, not students, volunteers every year. Um, currently, they're a little less because of the war in Ukraine. So we don't send any volunteers to Ukraine or Belarus, for example, and of course, not to Russia as well. Um, generally, we're more, more focused on Eastern Europe, though, because Germany did hurt them a lot more than Western Europe. Um, and we go to nine different countries currently. Um, again, not included Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. Um, so uh, the USA, Israel, and then some other European countries. Um, and as you said, originally, we were only focused on reconciliation towards all people and organizations that were hurt by the Holocaust and by the Germans during World War II. Um, it shifted a little. Now we're still doing a lot of work with Jewish organizations. We have one volunteer in Chicago. She's working at the Jewish Elderly Home in Uptown Chicago. Uh, me and another volunteer work at the Holocaust Museum, but we also have two volunteers who work for Cradles to Crayons. Um, just helping generally underprivileged people, um, people who are hit by poverty, for example. 
Uh, we also have many volunteers that work at a food bank. Um, yeah, so generally what, underprivileged people. And what do you do at the Holocaust, uh, Illinois Holocaust Museum as an intern? Right, so, so um, my main... Uh, my main task is to get the student groups in that come to the museum for field trips. So we give them headphones. We make sure they get their receivers and the docents, the tour guides, get microphones and transmitters so everyone can hear each other. Because sometimes it does get a little crowded in the exhibition. So it really helps that the students have headphones and the docents don't have to scream. Um, and then there are many other tasks that I do, like smaller tasks. One thing, of course, is translating because I'm German. And although the language that they used back then is very different and full of euphemisms, for example, I spend half the time on dictionaries online. Um, that is definitely a big part of what I'm doing. Um, another thing would be we have an online tour that we're currently working on about women, Jewish women during the Holocaust, which for me was very, very interesting because in class we never discussed, for example, the roles um, Korea had careers between the concentration camps and the ghettos, transferring information, they were mostly women. And I, I didn't know that. Um, and generally things like that, like Rosa Roberta, um, yeah, it's really interesting. And yes. Carlo, are, are, you, are you doing something explicit um, about reconciliation in your role at the museum? Or is it just the fact that you as a German citizen, young citizen, work in a Holocaust museum in the U.S., is that in itself an act of reconciliation, you think? Yeah, I would say this is the act of reconciliation. Um, I'm not really doing anything else um, focused on reconciliation but being here. So I do talk to survivors a lot, and I've even heard from some people that the interns here really helped them to get rid of hate that they didn't realize they still had, um, realizing that Germans nowadays are not equal to the Germans in 1945. So I guess the work here is the reconciliation that we're doing. Okay. How did meeting the Holocaust survivor, Rolf Rehbock, change your perspective on the Holocaust? Yeah, I definitely, that was a big change. So I knew all the facts. I had read books about the Holocaust. Um, for a 16-year-old, I was really invested. But Knowing all these facts, knowing that six million people died, uh, six million Jewish people died during the Holocaust, that you know that and you see that as a grim statistic, but it's easy to just view that as numbers. But then when you meet someone that was supposed to be part of this grim statistic, that was supposed to not exist if the Nazis had completely succeeded, really changes this perspective. You realize his grandchildren wouldn't be there, his children wouldn't be there. Um, the world wouldn't be as good without him. And so that, yeah, that really changes it when you realize behind these numbers, there's a family, there's an individual person with hobbies, with interests, with friends. Um, that, that changes it completely. Yeah. From a, so statistic, from a statistic, it becomes a human being. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Trying to... And And did this um, uh, experience of, of meeting him um, also um, make you decide to work in the in the Holocaust Museum? Um, yeah, for sure. Um, meeting with him was definitely the point where I was like, more people need to understand 
that these six million were real people and more people need to have the chance to talk to a survivor. That school paper I wrote, my conclusion was we need to invite more survivors to German schools because we do have them in Germany. In the USA, there are more um, because, of course, the survivors would not like to stay in Germany after the war. Um, but even second generation speakers, we have that a lot at the museum, people who talk about their parents. Even that is really interesting and way more touching because you know that person had connections. So, yeah, that definitely inspired me to come here and give other children the same experiences that I had. Um, and especially in the face of the rising anti-Semitism, even back then, that really was the my my point where I was like, okay, now I need to do this. I need to, I need to help prevent anti-Semitism, and this is art, and I think everyone should. So, came here definitely also because of him. Carlo, what generation are you um, um, after the generation of Germans that um, were active uh, during World War II? So, my great-grandfather was active during World War II, so I would think I'm third generation after the the war generation. So my great-grandfather was um, born in 1901, my grandfather was born in 1941, and my other grandpa 1933, so I would think third generation. Do you feel personally connected to, to that history uh, where your great-grandfather was part of? So I feel like that is a very difficult question because I I have to state before that my great grandfather was a very active Nazi. He was a member of the NSDAP. He was a member of the Reichstag from thirty three to forty five. Um, was the mayor of a small German town, then a rather big Polish town. Um, I'm sure I will butcher the name, but Sebastian, um, I would pronounce it, with about a hundred thousand inhabitants. Um, he operated was labor camp and a police prison there um and yeah the labor camp of course the circumstances were not great at all and it was liquidated in 43 and the prisoners were sent to Auschwitz so I I do have very big family history in that perspective um I really only found out about it here at the Holocaust Museum because that's when I started digging and I looked into archives and people online were incredibly kind to me looking into archives for me, archives that were not digitalized yet. And then I found more and more out about it. And um, to be completely honest, researching at first felt a little bit like researching a foreign person that I wouldn't know, no connection had. Um, more like searching just another Nazi. Um, but when you listen to survivor testimonies of people who were in that labor camp, which I did for for about three hours, I listened to that. That really changes it. You realize, okay, people were systematically beaten, and my great-grandfather was the mayor of that town. He might not control the whole labor camp, but he could have stopped it at any given moment. Um, people were hanged in there, and he didn't stop that. And then, of course, the liquidation to Auschwitz ends with the death of most of them. Most of them. And um, yeah, it's you definitely feel connected to it. I feel deeply disgusted towards that part of my my heritage, and I I don't feel connected to that person at all. Um, but I 
I do, of course, accept it as my well, my heritage. The, he, it is in my family history, and I feel like it's important to talk about it. Um, every story needs to be told. Um, but yeah, I don't like. I would, I would say, I don't particularly feel guilty for it. It's not that I feel guilty because it is. I I didn't do it, but I think the least I can do is now try to prevent anything from like that from ever happening again. That's amazing. I'm happy you don't feel guilty, and I think it's amazing that you in your generation still take responsibility to prevent anything. We need to. Yeah. Let's our, go our to show. Our show is called Never Again Is Now. For that yeah. reason. Yeah. Yes. Let's go to something more recent. I heard Carlos speak in person in January with a group of students from South Elgin High School. And we were all very impressed with what he said. But the, he started by telling us something that recently happened to him with the Uber driver in Chicago. And I would like him to share that experience, how he felt and what he did during that experience. Carlo? Yes, of course. So, but now more than a couple of weeks ago, I missed my train to work. And then, well, I called Uber, my last resort. Uber came and we started talking and I started to talk about my work. He started to talk about his work. And then when he realized that I worked in the Illinois Holocaust Museum, um, yeah, he started denying the Holocaust. He told me that the Holocaust wasn't real, that was a good thing, um, and that the Jewish elites were still controlling the government. And he was doing that while driving through Skokie, pointing at people with kippahs on, um, which I, I was speechless. And well, I was appalled. So I asked him to repeat himself because English is not my first language. English wasn't his first language. He was from Eritrea, I'm from Germany. So, but he kept repeating these lies, these conspiracy theories. And I tried to convince him, tried to reason with him. Didn't work. Um, and then he dropped me off at the museum. And I I was left speechless. Honestly, I... I was left frustrated in myself not being able to convince him because if I can't, who can if I work at the Holocaust Museum? So it was really a transformative experience because I lived in a bubble before. I had never encountered a Holocaust denier at all, not in Germany, not here. I saw that in the news that Holocaust deniers were on the rise. Um, and then I did a little more research into that and decided to include that in my speech because I realized this was no singular encounter. This was rather something that stood for for the rising anti-Semitism in America, um, for the rising hate crimes, for really everything, this this anti-Semitic development in America, um, which shocked me, but also motivated me to do my work even more. And having said that I couldn't convince him, in the end, I did get him to promise me to come to the museum. Ah, which great. I think is important. I couldn't convince him of his opinion, but then again, we were only together for like 15 minutes. Um, so I just hope he comes to the museum and changes his mind because that's that's the place where you would do something like that. Speaking with a survivor and telling them that the Holocaust wasn't real, I don't think that's as easy as telling some 19-year-old kid in your car that the Holocaust wasn't real. I think that's a victory, Carlo, that you made him promise to come to the to the museum uh, after 
your experience of not being able to convince him yourself that the Holocaust really happened. Yeah, um, I, yeah, I agree. I so, consider that in the end, I consider that small step again in the right direction. Yes, yes. What what did you say to him uh, in your conversation with him when you tried to convince him? So, um, right, he said Holocaust wasn't real was a good thing Europe would be better with um, the Holocaust than without it and then I I asked him to repeat himself he did and then I told him about the atrocities that happened I mentioned the Sonderkommandos I mentioned how people got shot in Russia how Auschwitz was in fact real and the memorial site is still up um, and in all honesty I don't think someone ever told him that no one ever told him that the Holocaust wasn't real I, I think he his, his group of friends, no one ever considered the Holocaust to be actually real. And so he he didn't really know what to answer, uh, what to reply to to me saying these things, to me saying that there are a picture of starving people inside the museum. If he wants to see that, if he wants to see this cruelty, he should come. Um, so I just tried to reason with him and be very friendly because blocking someone's opinions off is even though his opinion is completely wrong, like factual, it's not an opinion, it's a lie. Um, we, I can't tell him that because then the fronts, like we, we can't have a discussion. So try to reason with him. And yeah, in the end, he did tell me he would come to the museum, which I think is, is the most we can do. I can't convince someone to change his complete view on history in 20 minutes. Um, but yeah, like he, he seemed surprised. You mean surprised at how well thought out your answers were? Yeah, and surprised that someone, yeah, that someone would actually know things about it and could point out certain historical events that did happen. Because saying the Holocaust isn't real is easier than saying, okay, Auschwitz wasn't real. Um, the systematic shooting of Russian Jews uh, wasn't real. Um, things like that are harder to say. Yes, I, I think I think you've just demonstrated for our listeners really what we're hoping with our podcast will happen, that all of us, including Evelyn and myself, will learn how to answer uh, such statements instead of getting either horrified or angry, that we need to educate. I know Holocaust educators call this a teachable moment, and you were fabulous. I mean, you did exactly what we hope all of us can learn to do in these situations. Yes, first of all, first of all, you you didn't just um, say nothing. No, you said a lot of things to him. You you spoke up. Secondly, you broke down for him the 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 abstract concept of the Holocaust into into actual things that happened during the Holocaust. Mass murders and gassing and shooting of uh, of masses of people in mass graves. Um, so you broke it down. You broke the Holocaust down into the, the atrocities that actually happened. And then you may not have convinced him, but you put and that's I think a big lesson for all of us. You put a question mark in his head. Did it really not happen? 
was it really good for Europe if it happens? So you put a question with what you said to him, you put a question mark in his head. And I think that's more important than convincing somebody right away. I think that that's very hard to convince some, somebody who has certain concepts in his head to convince him right away. But to put a question mark in his head is very important because then the person will often investigate himself what the truth is. And you I may totally start with it. Well said. The abstract of the Holocaust is hard to grasp, but we certainly events. We we I was going to ask you about your great grandfather, but that was a member of the Nazi Party. But since that question's already been discussed, let's talk about your other great grandfather, who was a bystander, because I think what you told the students that I was visiting with about him was also very important. Yeah. So. Um... I talked about both of them, so the persecutor and the bystander, because there are lessons to be learned from the persecutor, of course. Um, but there are even more lessons to be learned from the bystanders, because they were way more bystanders. So my great-grandfather, the bystander, was a devout Catholic, so he didn't vote for the NSDAP. Now, I can't and won't say that he was or wasn't an anti-Semite. I wouldn't know, but he voted the Center Party because of his religion. And then he was able to be a bystander because he had heart defects, so he wasn't drafted into the war. He was exempted. And so his bystanding started in, I would say, in 1923 with the Bierhol Putsch um, of Hitler. And he was, was about 16 back then, so not much he, he could have done. Well, he, he could have said something for sure. There's always something to be said. I'm only 19. I'm three years older than him, and I can still say something to that chord. Um, and then he grew up. My was, my struggle was published. The Nazis gained more and more popularity. In 1933, of course, Hitler assumed power. Um, and my grand grandfather didn't do anything during that time at all, despite technically his Catholic values telling him otherwise, right? And then again, the Old Testament is the Torah. They have um the both the two religions have so much in common so um i really think it's wrong here to blame the catholic faith i think it's the fault of my great grandfather alone to not stand up against these injustices and then um this went on and on and in 38 the night of broken glass of course which were which i definitely marked the point where ignorance is no excuse anymore he could even if he was not political at all, um, this is the point where he would have noticed. This is the point where he would have noticed that shops were broken in, Jews were taken away and imprisoned. So, and in 1938, of course, he didn't do anything either. And then in 42, which for me would be the point where I would have said something, an acquaintance of his, uh, a Jewish woman named Miss Kroening, was deported. She was taken from her home. She just disappeared. And he, he told that to his son, my grandfather, who told me about it. Um, which I think is the point where someone would have noticed something. But again, he didn't stand up. He didn't do anything in 45. He was drafted with a Volkssturm, where everyone was drafted. Oh, near the um, end of Yeah, but he, he left at 8 a.m., was supposed to enlist in Hagen, which was a city close by. He was born in 
Essen. Um, and then on the way there, he decided he wouldn't want to sacrifice himself. He went back home, was home at 5 p.m. the same day, and then just waited out the rest of the war. But I think the lessons to, that are to be learned here are very important. So my great-grandfather never enjoyed any higher education. He went to school until he was 13 and then went to trade school, did an apprenticeship, and became a painter. So he had no biology, no ethnic studies, no history class, and no politics either. And so he wouldn't notice the science of the dictatorship building. And if are you... We, I, which grandfather, great-grandfather, are you talking about the Nazi now? Uh, I'm talking about the bystander. Okay, they just both, to, okay. Yeah, they both didn't enjoy higher education. Right, that's um, what I heard you say. That's why I was that, confused. Yeah, that's a common theme. So my the Nazi grandfather didn't enjoy higher education, and the bystander, they both didn't which both um, prevented them from seeing through the lies of the Nazis and saying something. My great-grandfather, the Nazi one, was sucked in by these lies. My other great-grandfather was only kept from being sucked into these lies because of his faith. Um, so again, the lesson to be learned here is education is extremely important. And the Nazis knew that. They burned books from non-Nazi uh, non authors. They burned books from Jewish authors from every free-thinking author. So this really proves the point. Education is really important. Um, both my great-grandparents ended school at 13. So if they would have went to school, learned politics, or went to a history museum like the Holocaust Museum, um, they they would have known what, what to do and how a dictatorship builds up and things like that. Um, adding to that point one more thing the unesco determined um, education to be the number one weapon against anti-semitism in its member states which just proves the point education is really important um and then the other main lesson that i want to touch on is the the silent majority needs to be louder than the loud extremes uh and the loud uh, the loud minorities in that case my great-grandfather was part of the majority in 1933 40% of the Germans voted for the Nazi parties. That was not the total majority. And by then, you couldn't even vote for every politician anymore because back then politicians were already killed and the NSDAP was committing borderline voter fraud by intimidating voters um, with the SR and the SS later on. So, um, right, the silent majority needs to speak out and say something. And they need to say something early because when the Jewish acquaintance disappeared, Miss Kring, in 42. That was too late to speak out. My great-grandfather already lived in fear of the Nazis, but if he would have said something when Mein Kampf was published or back then, um, he could have said something. It's this privilege of free speech. And that we need to use that. We need to protect democracy with that privilege of free speech. And um, these direct attacks on democracy that have been happening in the USA need to be stopped. And they need to be stopped soon, very soon. Because if we don't, then um, yeah, we're in danger of repeating history. Are you worried about free speech in the Western world? Uh, yeah. So if we look at more and more countries in the EU, for example, sorry, um, in the EU, Hungary, Turkey, Turkey's not in the EU, but um, things like that, where I'm, I'm scared. Um, and free speech is getting more and more suppressed. And even in the USA, um, like with all the fake news going around, um, 
journalists are not necessarily getting arrested, but they're just their their good research gets pushed away by by lies and conspiracy theories. Um, many people here use the saying like there's no bad publicity, mm. so they'll just publish more and more lies as long as they stay in the news and stay relevant, which I think is an extremely concerning development. But it is free speech. Yeah, right. But um, it suppresses the the other people that voice their opinion too by by just talking louder than them and not allowing other people to really make use of their free speech. Yeah, we see that a lot. They they use their free speech to suppress the free yes. speech of. Us. Yes. I think that I think you could say that again. They use their free speech to do, uh, suppress. The free speech of others and i think that's very much true of what's happening today yes so it's very well said evelyn do you have one more question before i give carlo his last chance no i don't okay we've we've covered some amazing material carlo you've been fabulous just as fabulous as you were i have to say that when we heard him speak at the museum one of the students said uh, how often have you spoken? He said, oh, this is my second time. The first time was the day before. The students were just blown away because they couldn't believe how how well-spoken. Of course, they, they admired your English, but, but what you said in the maturity level. And I thank you so much for sharing it. But you do get last words if there's something you would like to say that we didn't cover. Yeah, uh, one more thing. First of all, you're being too kind. Thank you so much. Um, really kind of you to say that. And then one more thing that I I wanted to mention that's really close to my my heart that I always mention in my speech is the the rising number of anti-Semitic hate crimes in the USA. Like for the last seven years, even during the pandemic, when people were not to go allowed to go outside, they rose. And I just want to say that the that fight against anti-Semitism against the number of anti-Semitic hate crimes is an intersectional fight, meaning that the number of total hate crimes always rise with the number of anti-Semitic hate crimes. And if we allow these anti-Semitic hate crimes in our society, if we allow anti-Semitism in our society, that is the first step to allowing hate in general in our society. I think that's really important that more people understand that. If we look at historical societies, if they allowed anti-Semitism, it was just a matter of time until they allowed hate against all others. The Third Reich is a great example for that. They allowed hate against Jews, and then they allowed hate against every other political uh, thinking person in the end, and then against a lot more races. So I uh, I think it's really important that we understand that we need to fight anti-Semitism together. And even if you're not Jewish, it's just a matter of time until it affects you if you don't help fighting anti-Semitism. Yeah. Excellent, excellent ending. I, I thank you so much, Carlo. And thank our listeners for listening. And for those of you who have not yet seen Evelyn's documentary, Never Again is Now, you can see it on Amazon and YouTube, and it directly addresses what we've been talking about today, so it would be a really good follow-up. For those of you who want to know more about my play, Thin Edge of the Wedge, go to thinedgeofthewedge.com. It's first-hand accounts of survivors and saviors. And the concept is that if you don't say anything, that the wedge becomes so big that it is too late to stop it. So please, as we end every episode, we say, without putting yourself in physical harm, speak up against anti-Semitism and all hate.